Well, let's, uh, let's pray together. Our Father, we appreciate the day-by-day faithfulness that You have displayed in each of our lives. We recognize that the faithfulness that You display is something that we are not worthy of because of the vacillation of our own hearts and minds. And yet, our Father, You display this in spite of the things that we are and go through. Thank you so much for your faithfulness. We ask our Father that as we proceed and develop in our Christian experience, that every event that comes into our life will be opportunities for us to see you working. Help us, our Father, to recognize as well that these things are brought into our life for our profit and for our benefit. Uh, Sometimes it doesn't feel like that, but those are the reasons these things come into our life. Help us recognize that your care and your safety and your concern for each of us is infinite and unlimited. May our Father this day be a day that is beneficial for each of us spiritually. We pray that those special needs that each of us have and those concerns that are uh, deep within each of our hearts and the recesses of our mind will be things that we can willingly turn over to you and let you orchestrate. Now, our Father, we commit this hour to you. We commit the entire morning to you that you would be Uh, sovereign in our lives, working in our hearts. For Jesus' sake and in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, forgive me for doing a little bit of review, but uh, uh, now I got to warn you, uh, I don't know who's going to be here next week. I won't be. I'll be in Texarkana, Texas. And uh, why would anybody want to go to Texas in the summertime? That's what happens when little girls think they need to get married, and so they, they get married. So we're going down there for my uh, niece's wedding. So, uh, in fact, Doug won't even be here. Do I dare tell you that? Uh, but he will have a good speaker. Uh, Lee Whitworth, how many of you know who Lee is? Uh, Lee will do a uh, great job. Longtime friend. Anyway, uh, the letter of the book of James is uh, written, I suggest, to new believers. And let me quickly go through this. What did I just do? <coughs> hit the off. Hit the off. <laughs> there you go. Uh, You're back. Any drop yeah, there? No, the I've got to get the other. I've got to get the other clicker. <laughs> That's the one I want. <laughs> All right. Anyway, I have suggested it's written very early. I have also suggested that at the beginning he tells us how to respond to trials. We welcome them and we do not blame God. And then we come to the heart of the letter, which is uh, found in James chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, where he says, uh, My brethren, I want you to do three things in the midst of trials. Be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. And we have been looking specifically at the section on swift to hear, and we have been talking specifically about it is more than mere listening. 
When you take a course in school, uh, you take it for credit. The way you have to take it for credit is that uh, you have to pass the exam. You have to sit down, you have to write out what the things you have heard. He doesn't want it to just audit the Word of God. He wants us to listen to it and apply it. So it is more than mere listening. So uh, as he starts out this particular section, when we come to chapter 1, he says, starting with verse 21, that I want you to put aside all filthiness and all the different kinds of habits that we might have. And uh, this particular word that is used in the New Testament has a variety of meanings. This is the figurative meaning, and this is the literal one. And last week, I, or a couple weeks ago, I demonstrated the fact that you take some clothes off, and I wish that surrendering bad habits were as easy as taking clothes off a coat off or something of that nature. It isn't necessarily. We know that, but he says it is possible, so do it. But then he goes on and he tells us that in doing this, our soul is going to be saved. Now, I introduced to you a concept last week. I'm going to keep saying last week. You'll understand. <laughs> called the salvation of the soul. And when we look at this particular teaching in the book of James, he refers to it twice. He says, receive the implanted word, which is able to save your soul, turn a sinner from the error of his ways, will save a soul from death. And I have suggested to you that in the context of James, and in much of the New Testament, maybe not every single reference, but in much of the New Testament, this is not referring to the immaterial part of us. It is talking about our being. It is talking about our physical life. And one of the things that I have suggested to you is that this is one of the most influential sayings of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, it's mentioned in every single gospel and let me if i may demonstrate a place where it is and then ask you if anyone wishes to come after me let him deny himself take up his cross and follow me for now he's going to give an illustration whoever wishes to save his life and the greek word is suke shall lose it but whoever loses his life suke for my sake shall find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own life? Same word. Or what will a man give in exchange for his life? What is he saying in that verse? <clears throat> First of all, let me suggest to you that I understand the book of Matthew, Mark, and Luke to be written specifically to the church, the New Testament church. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are written to tell new people 
that are trusting Christ during the early church age as to what it was like when Jesus was on earth and what he expected of his followers. And so he says, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to commit your life to me, here is what I expect. Now the reason for that is right here in these two verses. Essentially, what is he saying? Can anybody give me an idea? All right, I'll tell you. <laughs> I think what he's saying is, folks, if you want your life to count, if you want significance in your life, you've got to focus on something outside of yourself. And the thing that Christ is saying in this passage is, if you live your life for yourself, as a born-again believer here on earth, it's going to have no significance eternally. But if you live your life for something outside yourself, namely Jesus Christ, it is going to have eternal significance. Does everybody see what he is saying here? He says, if you want to save your life, if you want to rescue your life, Go ahead and live it for your or go ahead and live it for me. If you want to lose it, live it for yourself. Now, that's a very interesting principle because I think that's true of just about anything. And that's why people usually get lost in different causes. But our Lord Jesus Christ is saying in this saying, if you want it to really count for eternity. You invest your life in everything that I am about. Does everybody understand that? Does everybody have any questions about that? That to me is what sanctification and Christian living are all about. Now, is that the case with all born-again believers? No, it isn't. There are a lot of born-again believers who, yes, I'm on my way to heaven, but I'm going to go and live my life for myself. And James says, you do that, you lose significance. Will you still be going to heaven? Yes, you will. But when you get there, there'll be nothing for you. There'll be no rewards, no benefits, no well done, good and faithful servant. None of that stuff will be there. Why? Because you lived it. For yourself rather than Jesus Christ. Let me, if I may, and my wife tells me I should, uh, I should use the word most of the time as opposed to always. Amen. <laughs> Did I hear something? <laughs> I am in no way suggesting that there is not an immaterial part of us. There is. But I am going to almost be dogmatic and says, suggest that the word soul as it is used 
most of the time in the New Testament does not necessarily refer to the immaterial part of us. Because if you look at these various passages, every single one of them, he is referring to your life, physical life, your, uh, your being, your existence, your self-worth. And so in the New Testament literature, it 99.9% .9 of the time, how's that? Refers to your sense of being or worth. In the Old Testament, I am going to suggest that the word suke or soul and is often referred to one's physical life. Now, let me, if I may, just mention this. I said it last time, it remains for scholars of historical theology to discern how the phrase ever became connected with the idea of deliverance from soul, deliverance from hell. We gotta save that soul. And it's foreign to the New Testament, literally foreign to the New Testament. And so let me, if I may, give you some places where the word saved, and this is the key, and this is a little bit of a bunny trail, all right? This is a bunny trail for the next few minutes. The word save in the book of James. Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. Remember, who is James writing to? He's writing to born-again believers. The word brethren occurs 15 times in five chapters. Chapter 2, verse 14. What does a prophet, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not uh, have works, can faith save him? And in the Greek, the expected answer is no. It cannot save him. So, verse 12 of chapter 4. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Remember, those are opposites. Who are you to judge another? Chapter 5, verse 15. The prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. Chapter 5, verse 20. Let him know that the one who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death. Now, the word save is used five times in the book of James. And we have to ask the question, how is that word saved used? So, again, a bunny trail. Whenever you see the word saved in the Bible, you have to ask yourself, what are people being saved from? That's what you have to ask yourself. And it is important to recognize that the word save has some very interesting meanings. The word saved or save does not always refer to justification or sanctification or being rescued from hell. Doesn't always refer to that in the Bible. Just as it doesn't always refer to that in the New Testament. So let me, if I may, talk to you a little bit about two very important considerations. There was a Bible scholar years ago, back in the early 1960s, named James Barr. 
And he was the very first, by the way, he was not a conservative, all right? He was a liberal. But he had exactly the same concerns as far as understanding the Bible that everybody should have. And he said there are two very, very important rules that we who read the Bible often fall into. And that is recognizing the use of polymorphic words. Can anybody tell me what a polymorphic word is? Pardon? More than one meaning. It has more than one meaning. A polymorphic word. According to Oxford English Dictionary, the most polymorphic word in the English language and we're not going to explore it, but the most polymorphic word in the English language is the word set, S-E-T. It is used, how many times did you notice? Seventy sometimes? Well, that was the word run. Run, run. yeah. Okay, all right, well, I was going to get to the word run. Yeah, but I think set has longer definitions. Okay, it has the longer definition. All right, so let me talk, if you will, for just a moment about the word run. <clears throat> I found the most razzle-dazzle. <laughs> Let me read something I heard at a conference with regard to the word run. Every single one of these usages have a different meaning. I ran out of ingredients for the salad, so I decided to make a quick run down to the store. While at the store, I left the engine running while I made my purchase, thinking that I would be right out again. However, while I was in the store, I ran into a good friend, Edward, who was running for county supervisor. This resulted in my having to endure somewhat of a long rundown on his campaign. Finally, fearing that my car would run out of gas, I ran with great haste out to the parking lot, returned home with the car surely running on fumes. And the sentence I would add is, the guy won the election, so it was a home run, all right? <laughs> now, I'm going to ask you for a moment how some other ways the word run can you be used? Run in your stocking. A run in your socks, yes. Your nose. Your nose is running. Your nose runs. I've, I've, I've done this before. Someone else? Run a computer program. Run a yeah, computer program. Yeah, yes. Run on sentence. Run out of patience using your computer. How's that? <laughs> ah, all right, yeah, sure, I do that. Someone, what'd you say, David? A run-on sentence. Good point. Any others? What are some that you were reading this morning? He made a run in the baseball game. Ah, excellent. <laughs> the interesting thing is, run is a very, po very interesting polymorphic word. Now, the Bible has also a polymorphic word, and that polymorphic word is save. 
Now, in our English language, we have a lot of different usage of the word save. And I just happened to go to the computer and I have noticed that these are all the different ways the word save can be used. Every time you see the word save in the Bible, it does not mean saved from sin or deliverance from hell. It just doesn't mean that. Uh, look at the very, uh, by the way, I had to get this one right here. Help save the bees. <laughs> I had to get that one. <clears throat> Seeing how I'm a beekeeper. All right. A word has no meaning apart from context. If you just throw a word out, there's no meaning. You've got to put words around it, and then it takes on a very important, interesting meaning. And that's the way it is with the word save. Another one is beware of illegitimate totality transfer. Can anybody tell me what that phrase means? Go ahead. Illegitimate totality transfer is when you take the meaning of of one word, say salvation, and apply it and its meaning to every word of salvation throughout the or throughout the Bible. It's there. It, it it piggybacks literally on the polymorphic idea. But does everybody understand what Luke just said? You take a meaning here and you apply it everywhere that word ever occurs. It just you just can't do it. You just can't do it because you gotta look at the context. So, with that in mind, let's look at these various places where the word save is used in the book of James. Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. The context, saving your life from physical death or saving your life from uselessness, I think. It's not saving it from hell, it's saving her from physical death or uselessness. Another place, and this is gonna be interesting when we get there. What does a prophet, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? And the expected answer is no. And the idea is save a believer from being unprofitable and unproductive. I think it's the context there. The next one, James chapter 4, verse 12. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Two opposites. Who are you to judge another? Save from God's punishment is the idea. Save from being destroyed, literally. Chapter 5, verse 15. The prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. Save the sick from continued illness or death is the idea. The next, <clears throat> let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save a soul from death. Saving a sinner, a sinning believer from physical death or spiritual insignificance. In other words, restore the person to fellowship because he's talking to believers. He's talking community of believers. He's saying, to these believers, we have a responsibility 
to each other to monitor and help them when they're having a difficult time. So, as we move on just a little bit, I think the significance of what we have in chapter 1, verse 21, is very, very interesting. And you will notice that in verse 21, he says, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility, receive, the word receive there is welcome, the word implanted, which is able to save your soul. I think the significance is important for born-again believers. The degree to which we deal with sin in our life will be the degree to which we welcome the word. If you harbor sin in your life, there will probably be a resistance and callousness to receiving the Word of God. And that is why God tells us repeatedly, deal with sin in our life severely. Is it pain-free? No, it isn't. It's going to take discipline. But if we fail to deal with sin, there will be a buildup of callousness with regard to receiving the Word of God. Everybody understand what I'm saying there? It, I've seen it so many times. A person, uh, a person living in sin, you think they are attracted to reading their Bible? You think they are attracted to letting God do things in their life and them recognizing that this is a work of God in their life? No, they don't. They don't. And it is a caution for each and every one of us that God says, folks, deal with sin. Deal with sin. Don't sweep it under the carpet. Don't say, oh. If you don't, the word will not have the impact that it needs to have. So hearing is more than mere listening. It's not auditing the scriptures, but applying the scriptures. So when we look intently and abide, we are a doer. We're being swift to hear and we're being swift to apply. Now, I suggested to you last time that when we come down to verse 23 and 24, he says, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror for once he looks at himself and gone away, he immediately forgets the kind of person he was or is. Uh, and the Greek can go either way on that. And so it seems to me like a person looking at the word of God intently is what he's talking about. And I suggested to you that the word natural is the face of his birth, uh, the face given at birth, because the context is one where in just the previous verses he talked about the new birth, regeneration. When we look at the word, 
we see the kind of person we are supposed to be. Yeah, we see the kind of person we used to be, but we see the kind of person we should become. Uh, let me give you a couple of illustrations. I've suggested to you that this refers to our spiritual birth, not our physical birth. I've also suggested, and we came across this right at the very end of the class time, last time, when we look at the perfect law of liberty, the perfect law of freedom, it is like unveiled face being transformed when we look at the glory of God. It's interesting that the word are being transformed is the Greek word metamorphe and we get our English word metamorphosis. And we all know about the change that caterpillar goes through to become a butterfly and all that sort of thing. It is interesting that this word is used just four times in the New Testament. Two times in the Gospels refer to the transfiguration when our Lord Jesus Christ was transfigured. His total form was changed on the Mount of Transfiguration. It is also used two times in the epistles, once in Romans chapter 12, where he talks about be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the idea is we're transformed from the inside to the outside. And he's saying it exactly the same way here, that when we look at the scriptures, there is a transformation that takes place from the inside out, if you please. And it's a miracle. It's a miracle that this is something God does for us. Uh, I think it's an unexplainable miracle. But when we look intently into the scriptures, there is that gradual process that begins to happen in our life where our thinking changes our attitudes change, our motivations change, our actions eventually change, all of that takes place. Now, I looked hard for this illustration and I finally found it. You'll like this one. When we think of looking at a mirror, this is usually what we see. I'm not going to give a name to this individual. I'm just going to say that's Ken looking in the mirror, okay? All right. How does he have stripes in the front? But not <laughs> I, I guess the stripes are just in the front. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, if we were going the other way, he'd be a convict. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but... The old illustration of James says, well, we're looking to see how we used to be. I am suggesting to you that this is the way the illustration of James should be understood. We look at our natural face, the face of our spiritual birth in the mirror and we want to be that person. Does everybody understand that? Kind of an interesting illustration. This, this 
as we get older, this is what we, this is the one we really want, right? That wrinkle wasn't there last week, that whatever. But I think this is the emphasis of James, chapter one, verse 22, or 23 to 24. Now the interesting thing as well, any comments or questions about this? To me, this is where James is talking. So he gives us a summary in verse 26 and 27. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God. To visit the orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. He's talking about pure religion. What is useful and undefiled religion? It is not mere religious ritual. It is not going through the motions. And we're all good at that. We really are. It is not regular, oh, I've been to, uh, I go to all the meetings. Every time the door's open, I'm there. It is not singing, praying, fasting, giving. All of these things are important. But it's a whole lot more than that. And what is he saying that real, pure, undefiled religion is? He is saying it's down-to-earth conduct with relationship to people. That's where true religion really manifests itself. Notice, it's controlled conversation. It's regular practice of mercy toward those who cannot repay you. And it is resisting worldly greed, selfishness, and indifference. Would you notice closely that when you come to verse 26, he uses the word bridle. Bridle the tongue. He's going to talk about that in chapter 3. Bridling our tongue. I find it interesting that he talks about a horse putting a bit in the horse's mouth and I'm not, I'm by no means a pro when it comes to horseback riding. I've been on a horse, uh, but I know that when it comes to getting a horse to go where you want it to go, There are a variety of different methods and tactics. And in some cases, you have to pull to get it to go this way. In other cases, there's a sense in which all you have to do is go like this, and it knows to go that way. It it just depends on the way it's trained. But bridling is a very, very descriptive and dramatic way to describe how we control our tongue. Uh, I love to talk, talk too much. I'm paid to talk, Uh, used to be paid to talk. Now I'm not paid to talk, but I still talk. Uh, Anybody who does a lot of talking, gotta watch what they say. 
And uh, for those who love to talk and talk well, when you guard what you say, you're miles ahead. You're miles ahead. Anybody want to confess at this point? Any true life experiences of when you said something you wish you could take back? Nobody? Russ, you don't have any answer. You, Russ, Russ is very careful about everything he says. Except when I come down to visit him, then he unloads. And I went down to visit him last night, and he said, thank you for coming, Ken. You're therapy to me. And I said, well, you're therapy to me, Russ. So anyway, we have our secrets back and forth <coughs> that we don't even share with our my mate. So <laughs> anyway, uh, any comment or question? But notice something else. And I think this is interesting. This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God to, what's the next word? Visit. Hmm? Visit. 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 Ooh. Visit. I'll just put some money in the offering plate and designate it for such and such a person. Is that what it says? No? I'll just uh, I'll just pay my taxes and let the government take care of welfare. Is that what it says? No, it really doesn't. It talks here about personal interaction with people who are unfortunate that you'll never be able to re have them repay. And in all honesty, I think that every single one of us in this room probably fall a little short there. But he says, here's where pure religion is, folks. Here is where the rubber meets the road, and it is down-to-earth contact. Because so much of a, what we do is caught up in this kind of thing right here. There's just kind of an indifference, kind of a, kind of a distance as far as us getting involved in the lives of people. Now, this is kind of a prelude to some of the things he's going to be talking about later in the book. So let me, if I may, just introduce what the next section is going to be talking about. Swift to hear, we've done, it's more than mere listening. It's more than mere morality. That's where we're headed now. And so what is it that he talks about in this next section? Uh, a worldly spot. And notice what he says in verse 1. He says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there comes to you a poor man in dirty clothes, and then he gives us an illustration. Now, He's talking about favoritism. 
And there are some synonyms with regard to that, and that is personal uh, prejudice, there's discrimination, bias. Forgive me, I'm not using the word racist at this point because I think that the word racist has taken on meanings that are just absolutely foreign to it. The polymorphic, is it? How's that? <laughs> is it polymorphic, is it? Uh, boy, you nailed that one, haven't you? Good. But I think that one of the things he's talking about in this passage is he's not necessarily addressing cultural bias because he's not talking about Jews and Gentiles. He's not talking about, talking about color of skin, educational distinctions. There are all other kinds of things he's talking about. What he is talking about is in the context of church, there are rich and there are poor. There are well-to-do and there are people who are not quite as well-to-do. He's essentially talking about economic <clears throat> distinctions in a local assembly. Now, I have a confession. And if any of you uh, want to confess, you're welcome to. As a pastor, there would always be people that I would want to be sure to greet on Sunday mornings. Now, just because I didn't get to greet everybody doesn't mean I was having these distinctions, but in all honesty, yes, they were there. All right? They were there. Economic distinctions within an assembly are very, very dangerous, dangerous and caustic. And I don't know what kind of situations you have been involved in in the past, but I will have to tell you that in any given local assembly, there are economic distinctions. And you have people that you want to rub shoulders with, that you feel comfortable with. They have your same educational background. They, they have your same economic background. They, they talk correctly, all of these different things. And we've really got to be careful about that simply because in church life, it has no place. Now, he's not talking about stuff outside of the church. Uh, that could apply. But he's talking about things in an assembly. He gives an illustration here. What is the way we judge people in the context. How we treat them. Huh? How we treat them. Well, how, how, can we, how do we know how to treat them? What, what is the visible? The way they look. The way they look. The way they dress. Uh, you know, did they put on cologne or perfume? Or 
did they forget to take a shower or are they filthy, you know, all those different things. That's, talk, that's what he's talking about here. And in all honesty, there have been situations at this assembly, I'm thinking of an individual who's, who's passed on, who would come into this building and as soon as he got into the building, you could smell him in the building. How many of you remember that? Any of you? Yeah. Uh, now, that was a tough one. That was a tough one. Uh, how do you handle that kind of thing? Did it happen in the New Testament church. Apparently it did because isn't it interesting that early on it's one of the first things James addresses. Nice clothes, filthy clothes. Beautiful clothes, tattered clothes. You don't smell them, you do smell them. Uh, to me, this is among the most convicting things that we could talk about in church life because it really does happen. I don't know of anybody that does not enjoy just being with quote unquote their own kind. And when I say their own kind, people who are of their same educational background, economic background, they talk about the same things. I don't know of any situation where anyone is immune from enjoying those kind of things. We all have it. But how important it is for us to remember that of all places on the face of the earth, that kind of distinction and bias and favoritism has no place. Any comments or questions? You guys have been awfully quiet this morning. Huh? I think we have to remember that all of us are children of God. All of us are children of God. Yes, that's a good point. That, that's a good point. That just because maybe you don't have enough money or resources to buy nice, rich clothes, you're still a person. You still have feelings. You still have. And it's interesting. We're, we didn't get to it today, but he's going to talk about how the fact that oftentimes. People who are poor economically in this life are spiritual millionaires by comparison. The most difficult people Christ ever encountered through the Gospels are people who were well off who said, I don't know if I need you or not. They were self-assured of their own resources and own status. Okay, folks.
Thank you so much. We'll do it again in the future.